Therefore, submit to God. So why is therefore there? Well, you got to look what it's there for, right? Which we just did. So now your job is to submit to God, right? In light of the grace that is offered to the humble, there is only one thing for you and I to do, which is to submit to God. And now submitting is pretty simple, okay? Pretty, uh, it's pretty simple. It has to do with ordering yourself under God, to surrender him as a conquering king. It simply means to obey. So are you submitting? And as we're going to read in this next part of the verse, he says, resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Are you submitting to God or are you submitting to the devil? Or are you resisting God or are you resisting the devil? And the answer here for us is to submit to God and resist the devil. And submission, which I don't think I finished, means to be obedient, to obey. It's as simple as that. I think a lot of people think that Christianity is this, you know, super structured, rule by rule thing, right? Like, Christians can't have fun. It's, you know, it's do this and don't do that. You can't do that. But in reality, what we come to find out is that, you know, we were created to be under God, right? Like, we were created to be submissive to God. We were created to obey God. It's something that we need and we're designed for. And yet, because of sin, we have risen up in rebellion against him to seek and do our own things, right? Because we want to become like God. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, right? But you and I were designed for it. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And it's a necessary thing because it's a freeing thing because it frees us from the thing that binds us. It frees us from the thing that destroys us, which is obviously what? Sin. Good. The answer is usually sin or Jesus, right? This time it's sin. Now, we're to submit to him. It frees us. It brings us this freedom, it brings us everything that is a part of God. And what do we submit to? What do we, what do we obey, right? When it comes to Jesus and obeying him, okay, what do we obey? What did Jesus tell you? There's a lot of stuff. You don't have time to answer it all, right? It's this. It's the word of God, right? It's the word of God is what we submit to and obey. So what he says we do. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. To solve the problems of carnality and the strife it causes, we also have to resist the devil. This means to stand against the devil's deceptions and his efforts to intimidate. And as we resist the devil, we are promised that he will flee from you. Now, resist in the Greek actually means to stand or against. Stand against. When was the last time that we, we studied that? talking about standing in reference to the devil. Yes, perfect, right? When we were doing the armor of God. When we talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, we see it in verses 10 through 13. I'm going to read it really quick. Paul said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, that you may be able to put the devil in a headlock. No, right? Have you guys seen that t-shirt where it's like, I'm going to stomp the devil. I'm going to punch the devil. I'm like, listen, that's not going to happen. Paul says, look, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against fl flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, right? To stand. 
resist the devil, stand up against the devil. How do you do that? Well, we read it in Ephesians chapter 6 about putting the armor on. That's how you stand against the devil, putting the armor of God on. And if you withstand against the devil, the Bible promises that he will flee from you. And as he flees from you, James then challenges us to what? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now remember, this is in reference to Christians, okay? Because those who have not been born again, they do not draw near to God on their own. Before you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you did not draw near to God on your own. How did it happen? Huh? Yeah, well, I'm trying to get to the opposite of if you went to God, what would be the opposite? God went to you. God sought you out. God chose you. You might think, well, no, I kind of did No. <laughs> God did it. The Holy Spirit led you. Jesus says himself in, in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he repeats it again in verse 65 where he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So don't, you know, misinterpret what James is saying here, that it's, it's not that you are drawing near to God, but now that you have been given salvation in the Spirit of God, you can draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? Reading his word, right? Praying, being in his presence, and, and he promises us, there's a promise that's connected to that, that you, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And oftentimes we struggle with, okay, well, God, where are you? And, and often what happens is it's not that we, it's not that he has walked away. It's that we have walked away, that we have separated from God. And maybe it wasn't even a conscious decision. Maybe we've just been lazy. You know, maybe we just haven't really been intentional. You know, I think of like when I first, you know, started, I guess, courting or pursuing Whitney, I, it was everything that was in me was intentional on building a relationship with her. And the same thing with Christ. Everything that was in me was intentional with building a relationship with him. But sometimes as time goes on, things start to diminish, right? We, we start to fade. And we have to continually draw near to God. And I have a story for you really quick. If we're far from God, he hasn't distanced himself from us. And uh, we have distanced... We have distanced ourselves from our God. Not a dumb joke that says, like, we don't social distance from God, but that's dumb. All right, anyways, uh, an elderly couple drove down the road in their car with a front bench seat. So my very first car was a, a Chevy pickup truck that had just one bench. You could fit, like, four people on it, right? There was no back seats. So this is the idea that you're getting here, okay? There's just one bench that this elderly couple was driving on. And as they drove, the wife noticed that in many of the other cars with couples in the front seat, wait, am I reading this right? As they drove, the wife noticed that in many of the other cars with couples in the front seat, the woman sat close to the man as he drove. And she asked her husband, why is it that we don't sit that close anymore? And he simply answered, it wasn't me who moved. no social distancing with God. All right, let's keep going. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So it's not God who has moved, it's us who has moved. 
And James challenges us here, and he, again, he gets pretty open about it. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And not many preachers in America would preach something like this, right? It's all about, you know, God has, God has a, you know, God, I can't even say it because it's so dumb and quirky and so not biblical. You know, live your best life now and, you know, God knows your destiny and your path and your future and, you know, this and that. And it's always about you with Jesus mixed into it, right? It's always about what Jesus can do for you and how he can better you and this and that. And James is like, no, okay, you're an adulterer and adulteress. You're an enemy with God. He says, you sinner, right? You double-minded, lament, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter, uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like what kind of American gospel preacher would say that? None, right? Because nobody would want to tithe anymore. Nobody would want to come back anymore because you're making me feel miserable. You're revealing to me how wicked and nasty of a person I am. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am an adulterer. Yes, I am an enemy with God. Because there's things in me that are not right with God's spirit. So James challenges you and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Listen, as we draw near to God, there's going to be something that happens. It's going to hurt, okay? There is safety and there is comfort in the presence of God. Yeah, that happens. You read that all through Psalms, and we understand that from experience. But at the same time, there's a conviction that comes about. There's a, a revealing that comes about. Because as we get closer to God, we see ourselves through who we really are. We see how imperfect we are against the one who is perfect and how unholy we are against the one who is holy and how unrighteous we are against the one who is righteous, right? He reveals the things in us that are are bad, that are wrong. And David points this out pretty clear when he talks about when he sinned, right? He was a, a man after God's own heart, yet he fell hard, right? He murdered a man so that he could sleep with his wife. That was the king of Israel. That was a guy who's been dubbed the man after God's own heart. And it wasn't so much, now we want to abstain from sin, yeah, of course, but you all know that we're going to sin, okay? Our goal is not like, okay, yeah, I know I'm going to sin. I'm just going to pray and accept, you know, grace. No, Paul said, don't do that. Don't, don't freely sin knowing that grace abounds. That's not how Christianity works at all, right? But what the one thing that I noticed with, with David is that when he sinned, he was challenged and he was confronted, and it hurt. And for the, for the first part of it, he tried to pass the blame off, right? I don't know if you guys remember this when Nathan confronted him. But then when it was revealed that he was the man who had sinned, what did he do? He repented. He repented. We, he does exactly what we see James challenging us to do here, to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, to lament, to mourn, to weep. He repented, not because he messed up on a rule, but because he broke this relationship that he had with God who was perfect and just. It's all about God. It's not so much about the rules. You understand that? So he broke this trust and this bond and this relationship with his Lord and with his Savior, he hurt him, right? He hurt him. It's almost like, you know, if you commit adultery now, it's, or, I don't know, anything else where there's a law that's attached to it, you're not so much worried about the law that you broke, you're worried about the person that you hurt, right? And so in the same sense, David was just completely broken. And at one point after this, he says in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, he says, Search me, O God, 
and know my heart, try me and know my anxieties. And if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. He's like, God, if there's anything in me, if there's this tiny little seed that's planted that I don't know about that can turn into something again where I would murder a guy and take his wife, please reveal that to me now. If there's any wickedness in, in me, we cleanse our hands and it's kind of the symbol that we see with the priests in the Old Testament where they had to wash their hands in the, in the bronze laver before they walked into the Holy of Holies. And he says, purify your hearts. And we know this doesn't happen by us doing it. It happens by us drawing near to God and he will do it for us. He says, lament and mourn and weep, right? There's a time for that. This life is not all about just trying to be happy and joyful. But the thing about this is after you lament, mourn and weep, what comes? joy, right? This this joy, this freedom. It's an authentic repentance that is happening here. When we do wrong, we will realize from the law that is written on our hearts that we did wrong. We will feel remorse and we will feel guilt. And what happens more often than not is we try to we try to block it out. We try to pretend like it wasn't that bad. We try to justify. We try to find scriptures that say, you know, well, it's not talking about what I did exactly. Right? But God has revealed to us that there is sin in us and that we need to express the grief that is a result of our sin. We have to see the heinousness, the, how severe sin is in our life. And in humbleness and honesty, sincerely be upset so that we can fully accept his grace and his forgiveness. And the morning of biblical repentance is not opposed to the biblical joy that are we commanded to have at all times. Right? We see that often with Philippians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. In fact, true joy comes only through true repentance because it's then that we experience God's forgiveness and mercy. It's almost in that time where when we repent, we actually grow closer to Christ because what separates us from Christ is sin. Right? And if I had to equate that to like something to help us better understand, it'd be like when you quarrel with a friend and then you guys work it out, and then you forgive one another, don't you guys feel like you're closer than you were before? Maybe that doesn't, analogy doesn't work, I don't know. But Paul says it best in Romans 7.24 when he says, O wretched man that I am. Paul knew the bad man that he was, right? And that never left. That never left. That didn't leave after writing, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament. That didn't leave after, you know, planting multiple, multiple churches. That didn't leave after, you know, he became this, you know, mighty man of God and and people knew who he was by name, right? That didn't leave. Like, he always knew and he always reverted back to, I am the chief of sinners. That's what kept him humble. That's what kept him, you know, in the presence of God, knowing that I can become this man, that I am this man, that, Lord, I need you, that I can't become apart, I can't leave you, I can't uh, apart from you. Now, the command that laughter and joy should be turned to mourning and gloom, which we see right here in the verse 9, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, shows the insensitivity that sin breeds in a life. And Christians have become involved uh, too much with the world and are totally insensitive to the tragedy of their sin. And this doesn't mean that Christians should be gloomy people, right? Like, honestly, Christians should be the ones that are the most happy We should always have a deep sensitivity to sin, and our response to it should always be grief and mourning. 
And the indifferent attitude of many believers, which we see often, is where, you know, well, well, it's, it's not that bad, or you try to justify it, or you really feel nothing towards it. Uh, it's an indication of a selfish pursuit of relationship with the world. And we should remember that the pleasures of sin are short-lived, right? The Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, 25 says that they are passing. Right? Anytime that we delve into sin, it's, it's passing. And that's why we see so many people who dive into this desire that they're enticed by and then sin is conceived and is born into this and it looks like they are completely enjoying it but deep down they're hurt they're broken and they're in need of freedom and cleansing and forgiveness true sorrow for sin is not being sorry that you were caught but sorry that your heart was so hard that you could commit this uh, sin towards God you know when sin is looked at, a pr- as, at as a proud and independent spirit that stands up to God and deliberately goes the opposite way to his, then we see its personal and ugly side. It's not only morally wrong, it's a personal rebellion against the one, God, who loves us. Repentance means this. It means to completely and utterly turn away from our sin and follow Jesus obediently. I have this thing that I do. I'm way out of time, but I don't see people walking out. Are they walking out? We're not going to break out afterwards. I have this, like, for fun, I will go on YouTube and I will just watch different preachers, especially, like, the main celebrity ones that everybody loves, and they have huge congregations, and, you know, and they preach, and they preach out of the Bible, and sometimes they don't use the Bible, but they'll use verses, and they'll use, you know, similar stories of, you know, I don't know. The point is, they never talk about sin or repentance, ever, and that's key for Christianity. That's key for our relationship with God. Yeah, do we want to grow closer to God? Do we want this? Do we want Yeah, of course, but it does not happen unless we realize how wicked we are, right? But nobody wants to hear that because of these things. It hurts. It turns our laughter into mourning and our joy to gloom. But what comes from that is this beautiful, true joy that can only come from being redeemed in Christ. I'd be careful as you guys... You know who you listen to and who you follow and the things that are being posted now I will mention just one because I saw it uh, in regards to black lives matter and you know when people say in response well all lives matter right and then there's this whole argument about okay well uh, how do I explain that to you so that you know what we mean you know like we're not saying that only black lives matter I guess what they're trying to say is that you know all lives cannot matter until black lives matter right And so then they'll use illustrations for that, right? And one illustration actually kind of got me upset because they used the Bible, but they used it wrong. And they use uh, Luke chapter 15, I think, where it talks about Jesus left the 99 to find the one. You guys remember that story? So they're like, well, you know, there's the one who left and Jesus went to go find them. It's not that the the one life only mattered, all lives matter. It's just that one was in, in need of help, right? That was the one that was lost. But you have to understand, if you read and understand that text in, in, in uh, context, that it's not talking about any type of social injustice. It's not talking about you towards another person, right? What is it talking about? God towards man in regards to salvation, right? If you want to use something that, that talks about how black lives matter and how racism is bad and, you know, choosing one person over another is bad there's so many more scriptures specifically the one that we talked about last week in Luke chapter 10 with the good Samaritan 
right? When he said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus was like, dude, not just the people you like, not just the people that, you know, your people, not just the Jews, it's the Samaritans too, right? So be careful, you know, the things that, that even though like it sounds good, like it has a biblical connotation to it, or they might be using the Bible, you've got to continue reading and understanding the Bible in its context. Context is key, right? Context is key. If you've ever taken any English, you know that. If, if you want the truth, context is key. So, last verse. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he does something awesome. What does he do? He'll lift you up. Right? He will lift you up. Humble yourself basically means to lower, to make low. And God promises you when you humble yourself in his sight, that he will lift you up. And we see this promise all throughout the New Testament. We see it in Matthew 23, 12, where he simply says, and whoever exalts himself will what? Be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Right? It is God who will exalt you. It is God who will lift you up. It is God, because of the grace that he freely gives us, when we come to him seeking it in humility and brokenness, right? I think Psalms tells us that God is near to those who are brokenhearted, right? Because that's when we allow God to move and work in our lives. But when we're in pride and we're in selfishness, we have no need of God. We don't need him. 